Those of you who aren't into sports, today is Super Bowl Sunday, in case you didn't know. And uh, as is always the case, it's interesting this whole past week to listen to, uh, mostly it's fans, it's very rarely players who will boast about the outcome of the game, but uh, you hear fans bantering back and forth as to the outcome. And if, you've, uh, if you have a friend who happens to be a boastful kind of person or maybe even a name dropper, uh, how many of you have someone that you know that's kind of like that? A little boastful, a little name dropping? If so, then you'll appreciate this story and keep this in mind. Uh, apparently, there were two friends, uh, let's call them Bob and Ken for the sake of identification, and Bob was getting a little tired of Ken because Ken was one of those guys that was a name dropper. If a conversation came up, Ken knew the people involved, Ken knew the situation, Ken knew everything that was going on. And finally, Bob got so frustrated with Ken one day, he says, look, you know what, if you know so many people, let me see you go grab that phone over there and get the President of the United States on the phone. And, uh, well, this week he's probably tied up. (laughs) But, But Ken, being the kind of guy that he is, he, uh, he made the phone call, he talks to someone, he hands his friend Bob the phone, Bob gets on it and he hears a voice and it's the President of the United States. Now he's pretty impressed by this, but this isn't going to be good enough for him. He hangs up and says, you know what, that's great, so you know the President, so what? Hey, I, you know, I want to see you get the Queen of England on the phone. So he goes over to the phone, Ken goes to the phone, he starts dialing the number, you hear him have a conversation, he asks him to come over the phone. He calls Buckingham Palace, sure enough, the Queen of England answers the phone, you know, hello, this is the Queen of England, may I help you? And, uh, and his friends are just like amazed by all this, you know, and so uh, finally Bob says to Ken, look, you know what, okay, so you know the president, you know the queen, big deal, let me see you get the Pope on the line. Ken's like, man, you know what, I'll tell you what, I'm tired of this, tired of playing this game, come with me, they jump in his car, they drive to the airport, they get a flight to Rome, they fly to the Vatican. Ken takes his doubting friend Bob over to the Vatican and he disappears and uh, Bob's standing outside St. Peter's Square looking around wondering what's going on and sure enough there's a hush that falls over the, the, the audience. They look up on the balcony and out on the balcony comes Ken and the Pope. And Bob's amazed by all this and before he can catch his breath and understand what's going on, this Italian guy next to him says, Paisan, let me ask you a question. Who's that standing out on the balcony with Ken? You know, sometimes, I guess sometimes you can brag, but uh, then again, if there was anybody, if you got your Bibles, if there was anyone who could boast about the things that were going on in his life, it would be the Apostle Paul, because this guy did it, and he knew people, and he could have boasted about it, he could have bragged about it, he could have dropped several names, but he was a guy that didn't do that. And in fact, in Philippians chapter 3, I want to read this passage because it introduces what we've been discussing in Second Thessalonians. But in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul deals with this whole idea of name dropping or boasting when he addresses the matter starting with verse 1. Philippians 3, verse 1, we read these words. He says, And finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. I like that. He's saying, you know what, I don't have a problem telling you the same stuff over and over again because it's the truth, the fundamental truth, that if you continue to understand those truths, I don't have a problem writing to you again, explaining it to you again, if we've got to do it all over and start from the top, let's go ahead and do it because it's only those truths, those fundamental truths, that will set you free. So, so I don't have a problem. Let me explain it to you again. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. He's saying beware of false teachers who will come and promote a gospel that's different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beware of what they teach you. Beware of what they tell you. Because regardless of their intentions, sometimes what they're going to teach you is wrong. And you need to be aware of that. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ. And he says, and put no confidence in the flesh. He was saying that there were those who were bragging about the fact that they were God's chosen people, the Jewish race. And they were bragging about the fact that, you know what, we're God's people regardless of what we believe about Jesus Christ, regardless of anything else that we hear, we're God's people, that's the way it is. And Paul said, hey, let me tell you something. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, and as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. If anyone's going to boast and brag and drop names, man, I could do it with the best of you. But you know what? But I, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count all of that rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's saying, you know what? I thought I knew, but I didn't know. I thought I had an answer. I thought I knew the direction. I thought I knew where I was going after I was dead. I thought I knew I had a relationship with God. But you know what? When I came face to face with Jesus Christ, I realized that I knew nothing and that He was everything. And he said, I threw that all aside. And some of us come to church sometimes with an idea or an attitude that, you know what, we've heard something, we know something, we've already got an opinion about something, and therefore, you know what, you're not going to change my mind. And all I've got to say to you is be open-minded about the truth because even the Apostle Paul, who knew so much, said he knew nothing when, when he considered looking at Jesus Christ and the claims that he made and the power of his resurrection. He said, I threw everything that I learned out the window and out the door and, I was, and, and, I was, and it was worth listening to Jesus Christ and being taught the truth of the Word of God. And that's what he was saying. I threw it all aside. Some of us come with pride and boastfulness because we've gone to certain church for years and we've been taught certain things and we think we know certain things. And, and uh, as a result, we don't want to lay those things aside because what it would have to mean is maybe we're wrong about what we believe. Maybe they were wrong about what they taught us. And we've invested so much time and energy into this background that we don't want to lay it aside. So we're going to hang on to that which is false, and that's just the boastful pride of man or the pride of man that says, I don't want to listen to what God has to say because I already know everything. And Paul said, I don't know anything. When I came to know Jesus Christ, I threw it all out the window. It was all rubbish to me for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and to attain to the power of His resurrection. I wanted to find my righteousness in Him. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. And he goes on and says, that not, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the, toward the, pri- toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying, hey, you know what? I'm throwing it all away and I'm starting fresh in my relationship with God. I put my faith and trust in Christ and now I'm learning and and I'm new at this and I'm learning as I go and God is revealing himself to me through the power of the truth of his word. And it's important that that I introduce that to you because the passage that we've been dealing with in 2 Thessalonians, the letter that he wrote to the Christians that were in Thessalonica, gives us important insight as to some of the things that we've already talked about and some of the things that we'll be sharing again. And so turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. If you recall in our last session together, Paul was laying out God's timetable. There was some confusion as to there was some confusion as to what could be expected as far as God was concerned in the future and what his timetable was and what God's plan was for man. And there was a lot of confusion about it and Paul wanted to straighten this all out and he wanted to say, "Hey, look, you know what? Let's take a look at what God has to say." God's people were running around confused in in their opinions and and speculations and all that was getting out of control and they were contradicting what God had already said in His Word. And He's saying, hey, let's go back to the truth of the Word of God. And that's what we find taking place here in 2 Thessalonians in the second chapter. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Now we request you, brethren, or I beseech you, I urge you, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or to be disturbed either by spirit or message or letter as if it's from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In verse 6 and 7 he says, And you know what restrains him now, speaking of the lawless one, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Notice that Paul tells them and us to calm down as it comes to speculations, rumors, and opinions. Now, the only way we can do that effectively is by turning one another to the truth of the Word of God. The only way that I can get you to calm down or me to calm down and, and, and to get across, you know, get away from opinions and speculation is to say, look, turn to this chapter, turn to this verse, turn to this book, let's get back into the truth and see what God has to say, and He's going to give us clarity in the midst of that situation. He tells them not to believe everything they hear because they, you know, whoever they were, whoever they're hearing it from, regardless of their their intentions and you know what that's the other thing is we deal in a world where you know what well at least they've got good intentions you know what i don't care what their intentions are i care about what the results are somebody could hand you a glass of arsenic and think they're giving you something refreshing to drink and they could be well intended and you're going to be well dead if you drink it so i'm tired of dealing with people who are saying but they've got such nice intentions hey it doesn't matter what their intentions are what's the results of what they're doing 
And it's important as we relate to what's going to take place in this passage that you don't forget that truth. It doesn't matter what a person's intentions are. What matters is the result that takes place as, 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 a, as a reaction or a cause of that intention. So he goes on and says, hey, you know what? What he's trying to get across is simply this. Don't listen to everybody because you know what? Some people are going to be wrong. Now, he didn't live in the day and age of being politically correct. I understand that, but I don't care because that's nonsense. Because there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. Proverbs, what we just talked about, God's way is God's way and it's right. Man's way, man thinks it's right, but it's wrong. And its end is always destruction. There is right and there is wrong. There is absolute truth and the word of God lays that out. So don't go off on thinking that you have sincere heart or sincere intentions or whatever it is. It only matters is what is truth because the truth will set you free. Now, as we go through and look at this, he says, hey, listen, you know what? Let's take a look back at God's word because God is the only one that's trustworthy when it comes to giving us insight as to what we can expect. So he says the first event of God's timetable will be things that, that will occur in the future is the rapture of the church. Look what he says. He says concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. He goes back to a very basic truth that, he, truth that he already laid out to him in his first letter. And he said, hey, look, you know what? As to the dead, brethren, I don't want you to be uninformed. And he goes on to explain what happens when we die. And he also says, as, and, and we who are alive at the time that Jesus comes back for his church, that will be gathered together with him, we will be caught up with him in the air and we will be with him. That's what he says. So now they're running around and they're all excited because they're being persecuted and they're experiencing the wrath of the people around them. And as a result, they began to interpret Scripture in light of their experiences. Now let me tell you something. Don't do that. Don't do that. Our experiences and our emotions are, very times are oftentimes misleading. You cannot interpret truth based on your experience. Let me give you an example. Here's the kind of stuff that we hear. You know, with all the stuff that's going on in Washington, D.C. today, and all the persecution that's taking place in our country as far as Christians are concerned, as far as, you know, judges who are being oppressed because they've got the Ten Commandments posted on their law, with all the lawsuits that's going on and all the nonsense that's going on, here's what I hear from well-meaning Christian people that I come in contact with. Oh, you know what? The end must be close. Well, I, I believe this. We're in the latter days, and if it was the latter days when Paul said it was the latter days, and we're 2,000 years later, it's later than the latter days, so it's later than that. So, you know, we're in the later latter days. You know, there's no way you can get around that, right? But here's a problem that I have with that. How prideful and arrogant are we that we believe that God's timetable must have something to do with what we're going through individually or collectively as a nation? If it was based on persecution... Jesus Christ would have came back a long time ago for the, all the people across the world that have died for their faith throughout the centuries, then if it's based on us going through difficult times, we're as guilty as the Thessalonians who thought they must be living in the day of the Lord because of all the persecution they're going through. That's nonsense. We've got to look at the Word of God to understand God's timetable, and it's never based on what we're going through because, listen to me, God's people are not to be looking for signs of His coming. We are, we are to be looking for His coming. God's people aren't to be looking for signs. We're to be looking for a Savior. There's a huge difference between the two. What He's saying to them and reminding them is this. You can't be living in the day of the Lord because Jesus Christ is coming for the church before the day of the Lord. And if it was the day of the Lord, I wouldn't have to explain it to you because we wouldn't be here talking about it. Got it? Sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you just, man, it's so good. But I don't want to encourage you because then you'll get it wrong the next time. But you see, this is the problem that we're dealing with. Jesus Christ will come for his church in the event that's called the rapture of his church. It will not come, he will not come as a thief in a night to us because we are waiting for that to take place. Jesus Christ coming for his church will be like a thief in the night to the world around us who isn't aware that that's going to take place. We know he's coming. He said he's coming. The Bible clearly teaches that he's coming. So we're waiting for that day and we're looking for him. And even the Apostle Paul wrote this, and we who are alive will be caught up. What did he believe? He believed that Jesus could have came while he was still alive. And the word of God verifies that. And so we look at all these signs and we're looking at all this stuff and we're looking at the wrong stuff. 
We need to be looking at the Word of God, and the Word of God says, and we who are alive will be caught up with Him in the air. And if Paul believed that Jesus would come in his day, how much more so should we believe that Jesus could come for us at any moment? We're not looking for signs. We're looking for a Savior, and He's the blessed hope of every person that's ever put their faith and trust in Him. And so as we look at that, according to God's table, timetable, the first thing that takes place is the rapture of the church. Now, the second thing that takes place and sets everything else into motion, the rapture of the church, the removal of the church, the removal of the Holy Spirit as a restrainer against evil, sets into motion the events that are now to take place. And this is what he begins to explain. Secondly, we see the revelation of Antichrist. Look with me at, at uh, verses uh, 3 through 5. We read this. Let no man in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Don't you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Now let's take a look very carefully at what he says. He says, let no one deceive you, for, th- for it will not come. Well, what will not come? The day of the Lord won't come. The day of God's wrath won't come until two events take place. One is the apostasy comes first. And the second thing is that the man of lawlessness would be revealed, the son of destruction. So he lays out chronologically what we can expect. The rapture of the church takes place, then there'll be the revelation of Antichrist, and the, when he will be revealed is when the day of the Lord, or the day of wrath, will begin here on the earth. Now, the apostasy is not just another falling away from the truth of the Christian faith. The apostasy, the apostasy that's being mentioned is the specific rebellion, a time in the future where a rebellion will occur, the rebellion of all rebellions against God will take place, and Jesus referred to this when he was talking about end times as the abomination of the desolation. And we're going to explain that in a minute as we go through it. And it's very specific. But there's a couple of things I need to make you aware of when it comes to this term antichrist. The Apostle Paul never used the word antichrist in any of his writings. Only John did that. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, verse 22, uh, 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 3, he specifically called this world dictator that would arise in the future, he called him the antichrist or antichrist. That was the term, and that's the term that we use to identify this world leader or world dictator that will come out of the, at some point in the future and will rise up and take his place as a leader, a worldwide global leader on the face of this earth. And the, and the term antichrist, it's important to understand that, that uh, it, there's two definitions for it. The Greek prefect, prefix means two things. One is anti or against, which we have anti-drugs, anti-this, anti-that. We all understand anti means against. But more importantly, as we'll look at this, not only will this world dictator be against Jesus Christ and his claims of, of being God and, and God's plan for man, but the word anti also means instead of or an imitation of. And this will be very important as we look at this and recognize what's going on. So not only will he be against God and the things of God, but he will imitate the things of God to the point where he will lead people astray to believe the lies that he will promote himself. And that's critical that we understand it. Why? Because the whole foundation of what we're talking about so far is we have to become people who are better capable of handling the truth so that we can recognize a lie when we're we're confronted by it. And that's what he's trying to get across. We have to be able to recognize a lie for what it is, and that is a lie, regardless of the intentions of the people who promote it. A lie is a lie, and we have to understand what that lie is. And the results, as you will see, will be a result of the fact that it was a lie. So as we look at this, Paul had explained all of this stuff to them before. That's what he says in verse 5. He says, don't you remember while I was with you, I was explaining all these things to you. Now, for their benefit, they only had the Old Testament to use to explain about this future dictator that was coming. And so Paul would use the Old Testament, the Scripture, to explain to him what they could look forward to or see in the days ahead as to this individual uh, called the the son of perdition or the man of lawlessness uh, or Antichrist, as John tells us in in his writings in the Word. And so what he's saying is, hey, we need to understand who he is. Fortunately for us... We've got a complete scripture, we've got the complete Bible that we can look at, and we also have a biblical portrait of Antichrist that helps us to better understand what this world dictator is all about. And I want to take a minute and just look at this portrait that God gives us, because in addition to what they knew in the Old Testament, coupled with what now God gives us as a completed word of God, we've got everything we need to know as to who this person is and what they're all about, and, uh, and that's what we're going to take a look at. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Look at verses 1 and 2. 
Revelation 6, 1 and 2, as we look at this biblical portrait of this individual the Bible refers to as Antichrist or this coming world leader. In Revelation 6, 1 and 2, we read this. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. As we look at this particular passage, we notice one thing about this coming world leader, and that he would come as a peacemaker. The Bible says that as he looked, and behold, there was a white horse. And as we look at this, there's a lot of confusion among Bible students that read this and say, well, in Revelation 19, Jesus comes on a white horse. But you know what? It's not the same. And the reason it's not the same is because it clearly identifies in the context of the passage. And I looked and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. What's interesting, it says this, that he comes on a white horse, or he comes on a mission of peace. Now stop and think about this for a moment. Remember what's going on at this time. There had already taken place at some point prior to this, the gathering of God's people or the elimination of God's presence in his church here on this earth. Could you imagine the chaos for a moment, the economic upheaval, uh, the political uncertainty, uh, businesses that would lead, lose key leaders, hopefully, that have identified and come to know Jesus Christ. There's going to be a huge vacuum that takes place, and it's going to be a mess. And so as a result, the world is going to be prepared and ready for someone who could step on the scene and say, hey, I can put all the pieces back together. And if you doubt that this could happen, I'm reading through the paper this past week, and here's an example of what can happen on a local basis, yet alone an international basis. The dateline is in Indonesia, and here's what the headline said. The nation's economic woes raise the specter of civil unrest as prices soar and as jobs disappear. It says that Indonesian's army chief of staff inspected a battalion of elite soldiers and announced himself satisfied. We are ready to face the worst situation. It goes on to say, Asia's economic crisis has cast a pall over Indonesia and Southeast Asian countries once famous for their booming prosperity. It says, years of gloom seem likely for millions of people, raising the specter of civil unrest as jobs disappear and prices soar. Labor leaders estimate that between 1 million and 2 million jobs will disappear just in Thailand, the first Southeast Asian nation hit last July by currency collapse that has spread over the region. It goes on to say, Panic buying of food broke out early in July after one spectacular fall in the, in the occurrency, and police threatened to charge hoarders with sedition. You know what's fascinating is they've got all these people that are panicking, they're going to store up food, but you know what's going to happen? The military is going to come in and say, give it all back to us anyway. And it's really fascinating as you see the political and social unrest that can take place just in one part of the world because of an economic crisis. Could you imagine what the world will be going through when the whole world is thrown into an upheaval? Well, God says it's a perfect stage and his timetable and his system, is, his plan is right on schedule because out of that mess will arise a person riding a white horse and a sign of a white horse was always one of a conquering king who would ride into town and say, everything's all right, everything's under control, I have came to bring peace. And he goes in with a bow and he has no arrows. He won't have arrows, he won't have to conquer, it won't even have to be military. He goes in under a peaceful nature and he's going to be able to, res- he's going to, be able to assume a position of leadership in the world and the world is going to apply him because he's going to become the world's savior that's what the bible tells us and as we're looking for all this we realize that you know what it's not that far-fetched is it it's not that sci-fi is it it's very believable and it's true because it's coming from the mouth and the words of god himself if you've got your bibles turn back to daniel chapter 9 for another uh, biblical portrait so to speak of what this man's going to be all about now, now, we're just going to have to go through this briefly because this is a study in and of itself, but it'll give us what we need for the purpose of understanding the context of Second Thessalonians. And in fact, I think a book of Daniel would be a great next study to do, um, and, uh, so, but don't hold me to it. Oh, oh, I hate when you tease me like that. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, look at verses 24 through 27. I just want to point out a couple of things as it relates to Second Thessalonians because it's critical for our understanding of what's going on. We read in Daniel 9, verse 24, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. 
So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza, moat, and even in times of distress. This prophecy is relating to the people of God, the Jewish people. It relates to the city of Jerusalem. It relates to the building, the rebuilding or the building of the temple, and it does not refer to the church. And so as we look at this, it's a specific prophecy that, relerts, uh, that, that relates to Judaism or the people, uh, the, God's people, the Jewish people. And he's saying that 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, the holy city. And he goes on and explains what exactly is involved in the prophecy. And it announces that there's a time when Messiah will come and accomplish the things that he's come to accomplish. It says then in verse 26, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood even to the end that there will be war. Desolations are to be determined. And as we go through all of this, um, the couple points that I want to bring out are very simple ones. And that's this. The Bible specifically has a timetable that's of God's. These things are determined by God. The dating is there. The timing is there. A week equals, a week equals seven years. Uh, Seventy weeks is 490 years. And we can go through all that when we do our, our study of the book of Daniel. But the bottom line of all of that is this. That one day in the future, God had predicted and prophesied that the temple of God in Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And that there would be a leader who would come along and would protect the people of God. And that is the protector that we see here. He's going to come along and he's going to say, hey, look, you know what? Uh, the whole problem in the Middle East is trying to get you know, the Muslims and the Jews and, and, and all those that are involved in that area to get along with each other. That's ongoing debate that you see in the Middle East. And so what he's going to be able to do as a, as a peacemaker and as a protector of Israel, he's going to come and say, look, you know what? I, I can get this all worked out. You've been wanting to rebuild your temple and, you, and you're chomping at the bit to do it. You need a place to worship God and that's okay. Because what we're going to do is you're going to find out that you can actually rebuild the temple and it's not exactly where everybody thinks it is and that's the stupid thing about looking for signs. I hear Christians all the time saying, well, they're going to have to blow up the Dome of the Rock. You know, they're going to have to blow up the Muslim, uh, the Muslim place of worship in order to rebuild the Temple of Jerusalem. And as archaeology continues to discover, you know what, maybe it doesn't have to be built there at all. And so he's going to walk on the scene and say, look, i got a plan. You can rebuild your temple and you can rebuild it over the original site because the original site's over here and the Muslims can still have the Dome of the Rock and they can be happy and excited about the fact that we're not going to interfere with that and I'm going to bring everybody together and we're going to have peace and it's going to be great and I'm going to be a world savior. And that's exactly what he's going to do. And that's exactly what the Bible says it will happen. And as we go through this, you see where he says, and he'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week. For one week period of time is seven years. And, and what he's saying is that God's timetable begins the moment that this world leader signs a covenant with all of these people involved for a seven-year period of time. He's going to have a covenant that's going to bring about peace in the Middle East. It'll be temporary, but it'll be peace. And so as we look at this, we begin to realize that, you know what? He's going to be a peacemaker. He's going to be a protector. But then also what happens as we look at this, <clears throat> says that for one week, but in the middle of the week, at a three-and-a-half-year period of time, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Look at it says that he will be a man who will break the covenant that he made. He will be a, he will be a peacemaker first. He'll be a protector of Israel. He will allow them to rebuild the temple or synagogue so they may worship God. And at the three-and-a-half-week period or in the three-and-a-half-year period at the midpoint of this time period, which began the day that they signed that covenant, at that three-and-a-half-week period of time or three-and-a-half-year period of time, he'll walk in and say, you know what? The deal's off. The deal's off. We're not going to do that anymore. Now, if you go back to Second Thessalonians, you'll understand what he's talking about now in light of what the Word of God already says. The deal's off. And he who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. In verse 4 of chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians. You see what he says? This is what he's going to do. He comes in peace. Puts the world back together on a temporary basis as the protector of Israel allows them to build their temple. And I'll guarantee you this. You will never see a building project take place as fast as that one will when they finally get the green light to rebuild the temple or the synagogue. You watch and see what happens. They won't have to run it through plan check. I'll, I'll guarantee you that. That puppy's going up quick. 
because they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. You give them the green light, every national resource and every bit of manpower that's available is going to go into the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. But at the three and a half week or three and a half year point, this guy's going to step up and say, you know what? All bets are off. And he will at that point reveal that he is truly the man of lawlessness. And you know how? He'll assume his position in the temple and he'll want to be worshipped instead of God. Imitating God. He will sit down in the seat in the temple and say, you don't worship anyone else anymore. You're going to worship me. And that's not a big shock. Because if you know what's at the root of all evil, the bottom line is always this, that Satan himself, when he was Lucifer, contested with God about who would be worshipped. And he said he wanted to be worshipped by God's angels. And the root of all pride in man is that I will not worship you, but God, you will worship me. And so when this man takes his seat, it's easy to see where that becomes the apostasy. That will become the rebellion. There will be no time in the history of the world that a man would take his seat in the temple of God and claim to be God and to be worshipped as God. And the reason that it's going to happen and the reason that it's going to take place as we go through all this in a second is that he will also become a persecutor of Israel and God's people. He will become a persecutor. Read Revelations 13, 15 through 17. We don't have time to do it uh, in light of the context of what we're discussing. But he will become a persecutor. And if it wasn't for the elect, the Bible says, if it wasn't for the elect, that no one on the face of the earth would survive this great day of God's wrath on the face of the earth. That's what he says. Now, there are people who say, man, you know what? Well, how are you going to get along or how are you going to get by? Hey, the problem is going to be this. For those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have been taken with Jesus at the rapture, they're going to be stuck here and living out through the great day of wrath or the great day of tribulation. It'll be very difficult for anyone to be saved. The Bible says, who can withstand against this, this world leader? Revelation says he's going to be the greatest leader to ever walk the face of the earth other than Jesus Christ. Who can withstand him? And if it wasn't for the days being cut short, no one would survive. But the Bible says that there'll be 12,000 out of each tribe of Judah, 12,000 or 144,000 Jews, who I believe will have a direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself, just like the Apostle Paul did. And God will send them into the world to evangelize or to tell people what they, they haven't believed up to that point, that Jesus Christ is God and he is to be worshipped as God and he's to be believed and trusted as God. And they'll go out through all the world to do that. And the problem will be, it'll be very difficult for anyone who's left at that time to put their faith and trust in Christ. And the reason for it's very simple. The Bible says, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ during that great day of God's wrath, you will be executed for your faith. If you are not executed for your faith, that you will not be able to buy or sell or conduct business. And it's easy to see in a world of computers and instant access on, on information highways and internets and all the rest of that, how it's easy to see that if you don't have the, the mark of the beast, whatever that is, to conduct trade, that you will starve to death. You will not be able to make a living one way or the other. It's going to be hell here on earth for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says it's going to be the great day of God's wrath, that this peacemaker, protector, now peacebreaker and persecutor will destroy everything and everyone that stands in his way from being worshipped as God. And the Bible goes on to tell us what the ending of all is, and that is that he will also be the prisoner of God for all of eternity. And in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, and also in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 2, we're told that he will be bound with a chain, and God himself, Jesus Christ, will cast him to the lake of fire, where he will be tormented for all of eternity for that which he's done against Jesus Christ. And so that's what the Bible tells us about this, the Antichrist. And it all leads us to the next event that will take place, and that is this, the return of Jesus Christ himself to this earth. The return of Jesus Christ himself. And it's really important that we understand something here because, you know, the Old Testament, and, and we need to recognize how important this is, and, and don't bail out on me here and, and follow through with me for a second, because the Old Testament, for every one reference that the Bible gives us as to the first coming of Jesus Christ, there are eight references as to his second coming. There are 1,845 references in the Old Testament alone as to the second coming of Jesus Christ. There are 318 references in the New Testament. The thing that I get out of this is this, and don't miss this. As important as it was for Jesus to come the first time, God feels that it's eight times as important or critical to make sure that we understand that He's coming again. And you know why it's important? 
Jesus answered himself in John 3.16. And as we said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And he goes on and says this. For he, Jesus, did not come into the world to condemn it, for the world has been condemned already. He came the first time to save you and me from what? From the judgment of God and the great day of God's wrath. He came to save us from that. The world has been condemned already. Why is it important that we recognize He's coming back? Because when He comes back the next time, there are no second chances for mankind. It will be the day that Jesus Himself will judge the earth. First of all, let's take a look. He'll judge Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians 2 again, we read this in verse 8. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring an end by the appearance of His coming. The first thing that Christ will do when He comes back to this earth is He will judge this world leader, Antichrist, son of perdition, son of destruction, the lawless one. He will judge Him. And look what it says. With the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance or the brilliance of His coming. You know, it's a fascinating thing. We're going through another Bible study in our home in, in the First John and it talked about, we talked this past week in First John chapter 2 about the fact that when Jesus comes, God's people will not have to shrink away or hide from the brilliance of His coming. And the reason for it is it's a legal term. It's because we're not guilty of anything. We can withstand the glare or the lights, so to speak, of the glory of God Himself. We will not shrink away. We will not be destroyed by His coming because we long for His coming, realizing this, that there is now no condemnation to those of us in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God says you will never be held accountable. It's as if you had never sinned at all in the presence of God. Your sins have been wiped out, past, present, and future. You are blameless before God because of Jesus Christ, and it's in Him we stand. We will not shrink away from His coming, but I'll guarantee you this, those who do not know God and have never trusted in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes Himself, the world is going to run in fear from the brilliance of His coming, from the godliness of His Shekinah glory of God. They're going to look, they won't even be able to look at Him because of His perfection and His purity. And they're going to run and they're going to try to hide, but there's not going to be anywhere to go. It says that He will be destroyed with the breath of His mouth. The breath of His mouth is what? The Word of God. The Word of God and the truth of what He has to say. That the Word of God is what sets people free. The Word of God will validate everything that we're studying right now. That Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. You know, that's not hard to believe either, is it? Because the world came into existence. How? By the Word of God. God said, let there be light, there is light. God said, hey, let there, you know, let there be land, there is land. I mean, it's really not that hard for God to do. And when it comes time for God to judge Antichrist, even though no one else in the world could stand up to him, Jesus Christ will say, hey, you know what? <laughs> You're done. You're toast. You're history. Your day is past. God's timetable is right on schedule. And he goes on and he says that he'll be destroyed by the brilliance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power, signs, and false wonders. Listen to me. Listen to me very carefully. And this is important to understand. This world today, basically there, there are two teams. And it's not the Packers and the Broncos. It's God's people and those in opposition to God. That's it. I don't care what color you are. I don't care how much you weigh. I don't care how old you are, young you are, or whatever. You either are in Christ or you're not. That's it. You're either in favor of the things of God or in opposition to the things of God. And as we look at this passage, we begin to realize, here's the problem of what I mentioned originally. Follow me for a second. The intention of evil is to lead people away from the truth. Regardless how sincere they are, this is why we've got to be able to handle accurately the Scripture and the, and the Word of God. Why? Because look what it says. That this man, this world dictator, this world leader, will be able to do signs, will have power and signs and false wonders. You follow that? You realize that's exactly what Jesus Christ had? He, he performed miracles, he did signs, he had power, and he had wonders but they weren't false. You follow me? Listen to me. When you hear of things going on around you, here's the thing that concerns me about miracles and wonders and near-death experiences and all the stuff that's going on and guardian angels that's saving people that now write books or leave their husband to paint pictures and stuff like that. I just read that in People Magazine. This lady was saved by a guardian angel and she felt God was leading her out of her marriage so she can go paint pictures of angels. All right, now listen to what I'm saying here. 
You think that sounds ridiculous, but you know, there are a lot of people who buy into all these signs and wonders and miracles. And I'm concerned. We're driving down the street. Linda and I are driving down the street. We go past the church, and on the marquee of the church, it said this, Wednesday, 11 o'clock, miracle service. What? 11 o'clock? Well, I hope God's not busy doing other things at 11. Every, every week at 11? God's like, every week at 11? Now stop and think about this. And the reason I say that is this. I am very concerned about signs and wonders and miracles and appearances by Mary and other things that we hear and we read about and the world's amazed at. You know why? Because it's not the sign or the appearance. It's not even the power. I believe this world leader is going to have dynamic powers over, over nature. This world leader probably will walk on water. This world leader will probably be able to, to control the weather. This world leader is going to have powers that are supernatural in nature because he's energized by Satan himself. This world leader is going to be able to do things that, that Jesus Christ did. And he's going to say that I am him. And you're to worship me. And people are going to buy into all of it. Why? Because they haven't studied the truth of the word of God. And they're going to be caught up in all the stuff that's going on around them. Because they're not going to know any better. What's the point? What am I trying to say? Here, listen to me. Jesus Christ performed miracles to validate his claim that he was Messiah. When John the Baptist was in prison... And he was doubting whether Jesus was the Christ. He sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him, Are you the Christ, the one that we're looking for, the Savior of the world? Do you remember what Jesus' answer was? He said, You go back and tell John that the lame will walk, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, and the dead will be raised. Jesus Christ performed miracles not to show off, but to validate his claim that he was Messiah. The Antichrist will be able to do the same thing. The only difference is going to be, not only will he have power and signs, but the problem he's going to have is that his wonders are false. His wonders, his miracles, his signs, all lead people away from Jesus Christ and faith in him, not toward him. This is my concern, and wake up, folks. When you hear somebody interviewed that says, I had a near-death experience, and I'm not afraid to die anymore. I saw the bright light. I felt the warm, fuzzy place. I was in a meadow. I saw the stream. It was great. I saw my relatives. I saw people. I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to die. And then you ask them, have you ever put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Oh, no, I don't believe in Him. I don't believe in Him. I don't even need to believe in Him because I already know where I'm going when I die. Well, wait a minute. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. The Bible says that when Jesus Christ returns to earth, He will judge Antichrist, this world leader, for his deception and for his rejection of Jesus Christ. But He will also judge everyone else in the world who has rejected the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. Do you understand how serious this is? He says, and for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in its wickedness. Follow this for a second, okay? Look what he says. Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they would believe the lie. Turn with me to Romans 1 and we'll finish on this. I want to show you something that's critical to understand. In Romans chapter 1, the whole thing comes around to this. You notice that he says that? He says, so that they would believe the lie. So they would believe the lie. Well, what's the lie? I mean, you know what? There's all kind of lies. There's all kind of lies in the world. Satan uses all kind of lies to deceive people. But what is the lie of all lies? In Romans 1, look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world has his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature having been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and in their foolish heart, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Note it says, God has made Himself evident to every one of His, cre his creation. 
God has made Himself evident to every one of us in our heart that there is a God. His, his attributes are seen and everything they created. Man knows in his heart there is a God. That's not the problem. The problem with man is, am I going to submit to God's will instead of mine? Am I going to worship God as creator or am I going to worship my own version of God? Am I going to worship God who made me in His image or am I going to try to make God into my image? That's really the issue. And he says this, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What is the lie of all lies? The lie of all lies is this, that man can become his own God. That's the lie of all lies. It started with Lucifer himself in the presence of God. It continued on in the garden when, God, when, when Satan said, if you eat of that tree, you will surely be like God. Isn't that the problem with man? Isn't that our problem in submitting to God's plan? God, you have a plan. I don't like it. I got my own plan. God, you say this. I don't believe it. I got my own plan. God, you say, Jesus says he's the only way to the Father but through you. But you know what? We're going to find our own way there, thank you. We'll work our way there. God says, no, it's by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourself. It's a gift from God so that none of you will be able to boast. You can't work your way into heaven. All that you need to do is believe Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll be saved. The Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. But there's a warning here and we need to understand it. He says this, there's a point in time. When God will give you over to the delusions and the deception in the world around you. There's a point in time where if you continually continue to reject what Jesus Christ offers in forgiveness and and, uh, salvation in Him, if you continue to reject the truth of God's message, there is a point in time, and I don't know when it is, but there's a point in time where God says He'll turn you over to the deluding influences and the lies and the counterfeit of the world around you, and you'll be lost forever. Think about it. What was Pharaoh thinking when Moses, through God, performed miracles and signs through Moses to indicate that what God had said about Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt was true, and the man came along and the magicians came along and imitated a lot of those things, so that power was available. What was Pharaoh thinking when he knew that what Moses was doing came from God? And yet there was a point where he said, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to beat you. And God said he turned him over to the delusion of his own mind. And he was so deluded that he took his family and he took his army and he took everyone and marched them after the Israelites into the Red Sea and were drowned and killed there. That's how deluded they were. How do we put all this together? You know, what, what does this mean to you and me about what we just learned? You know, I was thinking of a couple of things. We'll close on this. For those who have trusted in Christ, we need to take comfort knowing that God's in control of all things. That God's timetable is right on schedule. That we have nothing to worry about. We don't have to look for signs. We don't have to look for what's going on around us. We don't have to be influenced and confused by the speculation and the opinions of man. We've got the truth. What we need to do is spend more time studying and understanding the truth. We're to be looking for a Savior. We're not to be looking for signs and wonders and all the stuff that the world gets caught up in. Why? We don't need another miracle. I don't need to see another miracle to believe in Jesus Christ. The greatest miracle was shouted forth in Christ when He came out of the grave three days later that was predicted and prophesied by God for centuries before that that one day He'll raise from the dead. That's the greatest sign that God has. There is no other miracles that God, that man needs. That's why in Hebrews 1 it says, hey, God's not talking to us like that anymore. He's given us His completed Word and He's given us everything that we need to come in faith, into faith and tr- to trust Jesus Christ. We don't need any of that. Also, I'm reminded of the importance of trusting God's Word as our only anchor in life. Not to be caught off guard with all the stuff that's going on around us, but to use this as an anchor and stability for every decision that we make in life. God's given us everything we need in His Word and to study it and to meditate on it and make a part of our life and then to act upon it. You know, it's fascinating. You know, as Jesus was ascended into heaven and the whole world and all His disciples are standing there glaring and gazing intently, it says, into the air, watching Him depart. Before that, they had said, Hey, Lord, what are the signs of Your coming? Give us some signs. Give us some things we need to watch for. And you know what He said? Hey, and this is Your sign that You will receive the power from the Holy Spirit and that You will be My witnesses here in Jerusalem and Judea and to the outermost parts of the world. You see what he's saying? You don't need to look for signs. You're going to receive the Spirit of God. And when you receive God's Holy Spirit, you are to go into the world and tell people that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. That's what we're supposed to be doing. All the rest of this stuff is sidetracking us from doing what we're supposed to do. 
Don't you understand that? It's all deception. It's all counterfeit. It's to keep us off target. The last thing that Jesus said was the greatest thing that we can get across to us. Well, if you've come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, you need to make sure that other people around you recognize and understand that. Why? Because when Jesus comes again, people you love will be judged for all of eternity and separated from God in a place called hell. We need to get off our off the dime, so to speak, and do what God has entrusted us to do and to let people know that this is serious stuff. When Jesus comes again, there's a reason that eight times one, eight times the amount of times he told us about his first coming, he tells us about his second coming. And the reason for it's simple. When he comes again, there's no second chances. There's no more hope for people around us. If we were raptured today and the church was gone, where would your relatives and friends and neighbors and co-workers stand? Have they heard the truth of Jesus Christ? Have they heard the love and forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ? Do you realize if they have not, and you're gone, who's going to share it with them? There'll be no one left. Oh, and finally, the most important thing, not that that's not, but for those of you who may be listening to these words and have never trusted in Jesus Christ, you need to do that today. You need to do that now. You need to do that before you leave. Because if you don't know, if you die today, what would happen to you? If you don't know if Jesus Christ came today, that you would be with Him, caught up literally with Him. If you don't know where you're going, get that resolve today and now. And the reason for it is simple. You cannot continue to reject a gift that's being offered to you without at some point the giver saying, forget it, no more. Don't take that chance. And it's easy to do. It's a matter of simply praying a simple prayer. And let's close. Father, I, I need to know what happens to me after I die. I understand what you say, that Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the truth and the life. And that no one can come to the Father but through Him. I've heard it so many times before, and yet I've never really acted upon it. God, I'm afraid to be judged for my sin. I'm afraid to go to hell for all of eternity. Lord, I thank you that even while I was in rebellion against you, you still sent Christ to die for me. And in the best way and the best of my ability, I do that right now. God, I ask that Jesus Christ would come into my life, that he'd free me from my sin, that he'd spare me from the judgment of the great day of wrath that is to come. And God, I just thank you that it's a gift, and I just thank you for it. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it, that it sets us free from the confusion and the speculation and the nonsense and the foolishness around us. We thank you for the clarity of it. We thank you for the gift that you've entrusted to us of salvation in Jesus Christ. God, help us to realize how important it is to share it with those who are around us. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.